Men's mental health matters. Live life with an outback mind. Thanks so much for joining in, guys. Episode 204. We've come a long way in this podcast. We've spoke about lots of things uh, in general, a variety of different people's uh, own um, uh, lived experience, uh, their journeys, uh, good and bad, all that type of stuff. You know, it's really interesting uh, being a male in modern society and um, the way uh, life, I suppose, wants us to be uh, and what it, what it wants us to do and achieve and sort of, you know, pay taxes and all that sort of stuff. But one thing that actually happens is we lose in uh, touch with our emotions. We actually don't understand our emotions. And um, uh, to be able to balance that and regulate that is super important. That's what they should be teaching us at school primarily. And, uh, you know, uh, it's something that I had to figure out myself just through self-discipline and that over the years, but I'm still learning, you know, and I think it's going to be a continual thing for, for most of us, for, you know, for the rest of our lives. So... Today, I have a really wonderful guest on with me, uh, Corey Gadzoinis. I think it's Gadzoinis. Uh, I haven't really cleared that up with him yet. I don't know how to pronounce his surname, so I apologize if I've got it wrong. But um, we're going to talk about emotional intelligence. Now, Corey um, has had his own journey of, uh, of self-discovery, sort of getting uh, you know, stressed and burnt out uh, through work and sort of you know, then figuring out uh, his own emotions and being able to sort of study further into that and now he basically is able to teach emotional intelligence and helps kids out uh, you know which is really important you know it's the stuff that we should have learned as I said while we were at school on how to be aware of where we're at and how to regulate that so he's written a book called The Little Book of Big Emotions and he's also got an organisation called The Big Emotions Academy uh, to be able to sort of teach this sort of stuff and get it out there more and more you know and it's, it's something that, uh, that that needs to be practiced every day. It just can't be something that we learn and just forget about. We've got to actually like, learn how to self-regulate on a daily basis. It's super important. You know, we're pretty complex as humans. If we don't do this sort of stuff, then we get out of whack really easily. So we're going to talk pretty deeply about that today and about uh, everything uh, in between as far as life's concerned and how to sort of make it better for each and every one of us. So I'm sure, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this chat. Uh, if you'd like to help us out with the Outback Mind Foundation, I'd really appreciate a donation. We, uh, that's the only way we're sort of surviving at the moment. So um, if, you'd love, uh, if you'd like to, to jump on the website and have a look, I'd love you to uh, give us a hand if, uh, if that's possible in any way, shape or form. The website is outbackmind.org.au uh, and you'll just follow the links there on, on how to go about that. So um, yeah, really appreciate any support. If you'd like to maybe help us out and do a fundraiser or something in your area um you know just be be so grateful for that as well or if you're interested in a partnership with us if you're an organization uh please have a look at our uh, partnership options and i can send you some information around that too just uh, email me to support at backmind.com.au also uh yeah on this podcast if you uh, would like to give me some feedback please email me as well uh there's been some great feedback for the last few podcasts that we've been having and i uh, really appreciate uh feedback on this one with Corey. Strap yourself in, enjoy, and uh, appreciate you listening in. G'day, Corey. How are you, mate? Good, Aaron. How are you? Excited to uh, be dropping in and having this conversation. Oh, really grateful to have you here, mate. Um, I know you're in WA, and um, uh, you'd probably be disappointed the Dockers or Frio didn't make the the, the grand final, but uh, anyway, uh, that's all part of uh, 
part of life these days. We can't uh, can't have the good and the bad uh, all in the same year, unfortunately. Yeah, the Dockers are. Um, I, I can't believe they didn't win a flag in 2014, mate. And then this year they are. They went so close. Mm. Oh, mate, it'd be frustrating. Like you know, you've got them and you've got St Kilda and clubs like that, which are just thereabouts, but they're not actually. Uh, Getting uh, getting close or you know actually winning one and uh, I was a bull- I'm, a, I'm a bulldog supporter I'd never thought I'd ever see them win a flag but they actually uh, ended up winning it so uh, pretty happy about that. Yeah, I got a mate who was devoted this year when the the doggies lost all by a point to the Dockers. So. Mm, I know, mate. <laughs> yeah. anyway, but that's, that's payback for a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all good, mate. Tell me a bit about your journey. Uh, where were you brought up? Uh, so I grew up in Western Sydney, so like Blacktown, Mount Druitt, Tregear, kind of floated around in, in state housing really, was um, was where I was kind of brought up. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was pretty young, I was probably nine or ten years old, mm. um, so I kind of spent, spent my life floating between, between different households um, with a mum who... It's probably bipolar now and I've done a little bit more study around around that kind of stuff. That that penny probably dropped me when I did my mental health first aid mm. training and I was listening to them talk about bipolar and it was just a uh, it really explained a lot of my mum's my mum's behaviour growing up. So mm. um, yeah, so yeah, it was it was a pretty hostile environment, to be honest. My mum really didn't know how to regulate her emotions and and that resulted in her really being quite harsh with me with beltings and that kind of stuff so mm. it's um it's stuff that i've really spent a lot of time working on over the over the past few years yeah mate isn't it interesting when you look back at it um you know some of those uh things that we observed with people around us uh school teachers and and all sorts of you know had pretty erratic behavior um uh, you know, and I suppose obviously the uh, the regulation of the mind probably wasn't a thing back then, but uh, but certainly um, you know we were exposed to quite a bit of um, you know trauma, I suppose, as young people, uh, and I suppose it, it still continues today. But um, you know we're, we've got to be grateful for the journey and what it actually taught us. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm from a similar background, mate. Uh, you know the the school of hard knocks, and um, yeah, certainly um, I was exposed to some interesting stuff growing up too. Yeah, I think it's a pretty common thing with the men that I work with that when we start looking at why they behave they the way they behave and, and what sits underneath it and what drives it, it's normally a childhood trauma mm. of some description and a coping mechanism that we that we develop. So for me, I went to a mate's place when I was probably 15 and I met his dad and he was this Australian champion bodybuilder and I'm like, nobody's ever going to meet that guy. Right? It was the thought. <laughs> my head and then he said to me one night do you want to come to the gym with us Corey and I'm like yeah man I'm in and I was just hooked and I just became obsessed with with getting bigger and stronger and it's interesting I got my Navy record not long ago and the psychologist had actually written Corey has an un- unhealthy obsession with with getting bigger than what he is un- uncomfortable in his own in his own skin mm. um, that was like quite revelatory for me so it was like I built this tank of armour around me to, to protect myself and then I uh, yeah. at some point I realised if I if I show up as angry an angry man then no one's gonna come in and hurt me because I'll just keep everyone keep everyone at bay and that's kind of been been my journey of 
of living a life like that and mm-hmm. then unpacking it over time. Sounds familiar, mate. Sounds familiar. <laughs> we we can we can definitely talk more about that. But so what happened? Like you, you obviously uh, you you obviously got some self discipline in your game pretty early on through that. And what did you join the navy after school? Is that right? Yeah, I joined the navy at seventeen. Um, that was a really interesting experience because I had a petty officer. Like we're talking like 1990s, really, like 94, I joined the Navy. So it was a different, it was a different world to today where political correctness and all those things weren't, weren't really a thing. And I had a petty officer who really just decided that I was too young and that I wasn't going to make it. And he made it his mission to, like, kick me out, basically. He had a nickname for me, which was Sir, First Seal, lovely to look at, but um, I just want to club you to death. Like, that was, ah, I just heard that from that guy every day. Um, and he would just give me extra physical punishments. He would come up into the dorms before the before the before the the bell to wake everyone up. Had gone off and flipped me out of my bed, and it really. And I just had, I guess, I had a mentality of you. There's nothing you can do to break me. Like I've experienced so much stuff in my. I'd already mean I'd aware that that I'd experienced all this stuff in my head. It just made me strong, yeah. and I wasn't willing to let this guy break me in any in any way, shape, or form. Like I was just unwilling, and, and I, I guess there was this this battle of the young bull and the old bull, really. So it was a really interesting, a really interesting experience. Um, but I guess I came to realise fairly early in my career that I was not someone who was going to do well in a position where I had people of authority above me telling me what to do. Mm. And the military is exactly that. It doesn't matter what rank you are, really. There's always someone above you telling you telling you what to do, and that, that wasn't really going to work for me. Mm, mate, that was workplace bullying. You were exposed to it really early on, and, uh, you know, that's not acceptable, and it wasn't acceptable back then, but it was uh, basically it was all part of the culture. How old are you, mate? Uh, I'm 46 now, so... Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, similar age, and yeah, certainly, uh, you know, it was a thing back then. You just uh, had to cop what you were dished up primarily, but it's, as I said, not acceptable, <laughs> that sort of behaviour, you know. And um, yeah, that guy primarily was probably pretty weak within himself and uh, obviously tried to, uh, you know, uh, overpower others uh, through his behaviour, which is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty sad at the end of the day. Yeah, it was pretty interesting reading the psychological reports about me. Um, and then basically just saying that, like they just they just what he said was was gospel, and me saying, "Hey, this guy's bullying me." They they just put that down to me making up stories. Basically, mm. it was like really a bizarre. It was a bizarre situation, to mm. be honest. Reading back on the, on the information now, yeah, pretty much the opposite of the truth. You know, uh, you, you look at uh, some of the theories and the uh, assessments probably still goes on a bit today it's usually the opposite of what's actually really needed you know yeah absolutely mate so so what happened so you're in there for a while and what'd you do when you got out um i just kind of floated around man to be honest like i was a bit lost i did some meter reading i was a pretty fit guy so i did meter reading and um just like a bunch of dead-end jobs or like worked at tip top and counted bread and Kind of really, they didn't really give me any skill sets, and I was dating a girl whose uncle owned an engineering company, and he gave me an apprenticeship as a boilermaker. So I ended up getting a trade, and 
I was kind of working in the trade and being a personal trainer, so I had those two things kind of going on. Once I got a bit of money and I could do a personal training course, I was working, I'd met my wife, and then I was working pretty much a full-time job and working as a personal trainer at night. Um, and I did that for, for quite a while. Um, and my career really just stayed in that construction kind of kind of area. So I've worked in glazing, worked in construction, and ended up in kind of an operations manager's role over time through different, different advances in my career and then ended up in sales because I was working for a company that had had this bizarre pipeline that would be flat out and then have no work. And I'm like, man, I, I need consistency for the guys was my theory behind it. So I started speaking to builders about what projects have you got coming up? What can you give us? And I started stepping into that sales role and ended up ended up really with my career in that kind of sales orientated role, still in the construction industry, but in the in sales type environment. Mm. So how was that for you, mate? Did that uh, sort of uh, impact your emotions, um, you know, fairly heavily? Obviously, sales can be a bit of a roller coaster, primarily. So how do you manage your way through that? Yeah, I think for me, I was very good at, at, at what I did and negotiating and communicating and connecting with people. Like it's kind of, I think it's like my superpower. So I didn't really have. I was always hitting targets and I think for me that's it just became this new so sales for me became this thing of look at me, like how good am I? And the more sales I made, the better I felt about myself and yep. the bigger my ego got and, and all those kinds of things. So I didn't yeah, I, I, I felt the pressure of like closing the deal and doing all those things. Um but I probably I probably burn out more in like an operational operational type role. Like before I kind of got into that sales role, I was working as a as a project manager, had probably seventy guys working for me and I was just burnt out. I was getting up at five AM and getting home at seven PM at night and doing that kind of five days a week mm-hmm. and then really just sleeping all weekend and one day I just got up and I drove to work and I couldn't have a conversation with my boss about it, so I literally drove my car. It was like a sweeping bend, and I thought, oh, this is a good place to actually say, like, I just fell asleep at the wheel, mm. and I cracked my car into a tree. And I didn't have, like, suicidal thoughts at that time, but it was still, like, I had no ability to actually communicate what was going on for me. I had no way to go, hey, like this workload that you're putting me under is unreasonable and I can't do it anymore because like who would I be as a man, right? My identity was wrapped up in my ability to be good at what I at what I did. I had people chasing me to do those things. So my identity was wrapped up in that. So then to go, hey, I can't do this was something that I just couldn't I couldn't go and even have a conversation about, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, sounds familiar too, mate. <laughs> That's for sure. I, I, oh, mate, it's amazing. You know, I like to hear another man talk about that because that's exactly what happened to me. It's interesting. I've just been thinking about it the last couple of days. I can't remember driving to work one day and just hoping my car would run off the road because I was so stuffed. And I, I couldn't talk about it to anyone at work, you know. And um, it got to the point where I actually rang what, what's called an EAP. I rang the EAP. I went and spoke with the EAP and they said, you've got to get out of there. You know, so they actually gave me the, the 
the guidance to be able to move out of the company. But I was so like uh, attached to my identity and uh, and and that status and the and the um, uh, the income and all that sort of stuff. You know, if I lost that, I'd lost everything. But the only way I could have a rest was just to have an accident. You know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, like I went, they had me AP in that organisation. I didn't even realise that's what it was, but they had a psychologist that they sent me to, and I kind of did what what is pretty standard in, in the system. I went and did three sessions with her, um, and went, ah, oh, this is not really for me. You know, like I don't want to talk about this stuff. I don't want to. I don't work to know what's going on underneath all this stuff that I've got going on. I wasn't ready to explore that, so I just left and went to another went to another job and, and kind of repeated the, repeated the cycle, but not to the point where I crashed the car, but to where I just rang my boss one day and said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not coming to work today, and I, I didn't go back. Mm. Like, I just ended up leaving, leaving that job because I, again, I couldn't have a conversation with them about how I was feeling, so I kind of left that job, had a few weeks off, and then went, went to another, went another organisation and, and started the process again. Yep. Um, and it was, I guess that, that, that company, I don't want to name names, but that company, I ended up working there and I had the experience, which I call an out of sequence event, which I understand now that when you have an out of sequence events, it can really unravel your internal psychology. Mm-hmm. And, um, so basically I, I, I was still in this mode of like working super hard so i'd gone i was actually not well and the operations manager was on holiday so i was covering his role and my sales role and i'd gone into the factory and had a guy ring me up he's like man i need this deal tomorrow you know typical thing pressure 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 keep your screams the loudest gets the gets the work right mm. so i've gone into the factory and we had about 400 tons of steel in the factory at the time that we were pushing through and i'd gone out there and there's a bit of context with Brendan, who's a guy that I'm going to talk about. So Brendan was a guy that had worked with me at a number of at another company, and I'd fired him for being an alcoholic. Mm. And then I'd gone to I jumped around a bit, so I'd gone to another company, and he'd come and applied for a job. And I'm like, don't give him a job; he's an alcoholic. Went to another company. Brendan rocks up. I'm like, don't give him a job. And then this third company, Brendan rocks up, and I'm like, the operations team come to me, said, oh, you know Brendan, and I just went, you know what? I know Brendan, but just how did he interview? Is he able to do the task that you need him to do on the factory floor? And they're like, yeah. I said, well, why don't you just give him a trial rather than influencing it? Mm. Um, so there was that connection with Brendan. And on the morning of this particular job, I said, hey, Brendan, you moved that steel for me. And as he was moving the steel, he got crushed underneath that steel. And I was one of the first people on the scene. Um, and Brendan... So as we were coordinating the rescue, because I'd been in the Navy and I'd done kind of fire rescue training, I went into that like, I went into go mode and I was just like, all right, I could see what needs to be done to rectify the situation. Mm. Um, but I also knew Brendan was in trouble. Um, so he had a cleat basically penetrate his stomach cavity, um, which was about 400 mil long. So he, so basically I ended up, I ended up sitting with Brendan underneath him and making him comfortable and had his head just resting in my chest while we were getting the steel off him. Mm. And I, when I passed him off to the paramedics, like I, in that moment, I felt his soul in that room with me. Mm. And I just felt, ah, like I, 
I was just a shell of a, of a human being and that is really where my journey started, where I really started to, to heal, um, I guess, uh, in that. Mm. So he died, he died in your arms? Yeah, he died. So when I passed him off to the paramedics, he took his last breath. Mm. Jesus. So when we waited the steel off him, he, he stopped breathing so there was all this conversation around i was really angry because i knew that he died and they put him on fire support and all these things but i just knew that his soul had left his body mm. um so basically work I, I lost the next couple of days really so the, the work had kind of put it together for me through conversations that I walked into a shower and sat on the floor fully clothed and just let water run over me and then someone came in and stripped me and dressed me and someone took me home to my wife and and I kind of lost all that time. But when I – initially I blamed myself because I'd given Brendan the job. I had told Brendan to move the steel. So there was a lot of, like, I guess, survivor guilt, right? I'd asked me to do these things and I felt like I was to blame for that. Mm, yeah. um, once I worked through that stuff, I – I realised I wasn't actually feeling any better about myself, like, even though I'd kind of accepted the fact that I wasn't to blame for Brendan's death, I still was not feeling great about who I was as a human being. So when I'd asked my wife to describe me in three words, she said I was an angry, arrogant asshole, mm-hmm. and that didn't sit well with me, and that sent me on a journey of, I guess question that I asked myself, there was two things that I did which I think were really important in this story is that I asked myself the question, if my brain is so broken, can I rebuild it any way that I want? So I had this belief that because my brain is broken and so open, I can recreate it however I want to recreate it. And I sat with that question over and over and over. And then I also said to myself, I'm not going to drink alcohol while I'm going to this. Mm, because I, Sorry, mate. I had this belief that if I drank alcohol, that would be, that would, I would die an alcoholic. How, old, how long ago uh, was that, mate? That was in 2015, so... Eight years, eight. seven years, yeah. Yeah. So not that long. So, mate, you know, first of all, well done for actually picking it up and... and you know, taking the, the the positive route rather than the negative route, but you know, so many people do. Like when we when we sort of hit with a situation like that, all the stuff about our um, our belief system gets challenged. All the stuff about you know what we perceive as being right gets challenged. Uh, you know, it was, it was a wake up call from from your wife primarily, but um, um, geez, mate, like how much good has actually come from it since that that particular moment? Ah, oh, yeah, so much, man. You know, like I just really, because I wasn't working, but I just wanted to be of service. So I had a program that I built out working with like kids in youth centres building push bikes with kids who were disconnected in schools and took them into schools. And, and, and that was really like life-saving for me. We had corporates come in and do mentorships in, in primary schools with kids that were disconnected. And that, that, I guess I, I come to realise very early that being of service was the thing that was going to heal me. I would go sit in my son's classroom very early in the peak 
like within a few months, I was sitting in my son's classroom every day reading. Like I'd read to ten kids a day every day. Like there was no parents rostered on for parent helper. I was going to be the parent helper that day. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and that 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 really being of service is a thing that that really helped me, and that's still where I'm at today. Really, is just in this space of how do I how do I be of service to people, and how do I take these lessons and create stuff to to help people shift. So I guess I've moved into more recently like rites of passage and taking teenagers on on rites of passage camps. And and what I realised pretty early is that teenagers have three big emotions like anger, anxiety and depression. Um, this year's stress has been has been added in as, as another factor. Um, and when I couldn't work last year because of COVID, I because um, all the schools were shut to external facilitators. I again, I went and asked a big question: like, how can I create something that will teach young people emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. so they can understand that they don't need to be stuck in in their emotions? And that thought came from on the first day I asked kids what their big emotions are, and on the last day. I say, who has felt angry, depressed or anxious in the last three days of being in the bush? And that then empowers them to understand that they have control of their emotions, that their emotions don't need to have control of them. Yes. Um, and that is the essence of, of my work now, is really in that, in that space of, through my own healing, taking all that knowledge that I've created and and creating tools and, and opportunities for people to to understand their emotions and how to have conversations about them and how to yeah how to actually connect with each other with really simple language. Mm, mate, first of all, again, you know, congratulations for all that. You know, isn't it amazing how we've got to go through all the all the soup to be able to actually get to a stage where we. Um, where we can start to really believe and understand this sort of stuff. Now, this is so much more powerful for you. Uh, if you had have gone to uni and studied this uh, straight after school compared to actually going through everything you went through and then being able to actually understand it at a deeper level because those kids will go into the workforce, you know, probably a bit more equipped than what you were. But, you know, primarily there's so many Australians out there, particularly men, which aren't emotionally intelligent, which are... Uh, you know, really needs uh, to be addressed and, and worked upon. You know, if we can do things on a daily basis so we can actually be aware of where we're at to be able to learn to self-regulate that, I think that's something that we need to be able to do uh, more and more to be able to address the mental health challenges that we have, but also the male suicide and so forth that goes on around us because um, self-regulation and that emotional awareness is something which... Uh, which we're not, um, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not good at. Primarily, would you agree? Yeah, because it's like I was in a high school yesterday, and I was talking to a, a teenage boy about that, and he's like, "Man, I can't talk about that stuff." Still, it's not. Yeah, it's still the there's it, still there the stigma for young men to be stoic and to be strong and to. Is still very much a narrative in society. Like I think this is we're still we're early days in it, right? And the problem is that I think the problem is that society is reactive to mental health. You know, I read a stat the other day that the government apply 
two percent of their budget to mental health. Yeah, mental health work. You know, like that. That just blows my. That blew my mind. That that figure. Well, none of it. But, come, none of it comes your way or my way. And uh, we're we're working in the prevention space. It all goes to the reactive space, doesn't it? You know, once there's a problem there, then we actually pay people to uh, to try and work on the problem. But really, we've got to prevent the problem from happening in the first place. Yeah, not, we don't do of that, right? Like. I can I can give three examples, but I'll just one. At the start of COVID, a really good mate of mine, his wife had rung me and said, "Can you come and can you come and see see your mate?" And I rang him up, and he's like, "Don't don't f and come here. I don't want to see you." Mm. Um, and he took himself to hospital that day, and they said to him, we don't think you're serious about what you're saying. So he said to the hospital that I'm going to commit suicide. I have these feelings of I'm not worthy to my family because he'd lost his job because of COVID and whatnot. So mm-hmm. identity tied up in his job. Yep. And he went to the hospital and said, I want to commit suicide and I'm going to drive my car into a truck. That's how I'm going to do it. They sent him home. 24 hours later, he drove his car into a truck. Mm, there you go. So he survived, thankfully, and he's he's done a lot of work and he's healed, but we shouldn't have to be, like, we literally need to be in crisis. We need to have attempted suicide to actually get support in in the reaction stage of, of mental health, you know. Mm. it's um, And that's what drives me to do my work is to, like, how can we create preventative solutions, you know. Like, I was talking to teenagers yesterday. I said, imagine if you guys had an app that, a web-based app, that when you go to your PC group in, in a Catholic school, partial care group, or in a, prim- in, a, in a pub, or go to your homeroom, everyone's got a laptop or an iPad now. You go onto a web-based app and you check in, how am I feeling today? And if out of 14 days you have a day, you have a, a theme of sadness or anxiety, you get a prompt to say, hey, are you aware that you've been anxious for seven out of 10 days? And these are some of the things that you can do to, to help shift that. Mm. Because what, what happens is there's a psychologist in Perth, uh, Peter Sloscom, who talks about the temperature in the room. So if we're in a room and we turn the temperature up two degrees, we feel a bit uncomfortable for a few minutes and then we stop feeling uncomfortable. We just adjust, our body adjusts to the temperature, right? And then we turn it up another two degrees and our body adjusts to the temperature. We turn it up another two degrees and our body adjusts to the temperature. And then all of a sudden we're dehydrated because we're actually not adjusted to the temperature, but in our minds we think we are. And that's the same with our emotional being we i grew up saying i grew up saying i had a normal childhood but it was there was no way shape or form that it was normal in any way the way that i behaved with my anger was that was normal for me but it wasn't it wasn't safe so people ask me how am i and i'll go i'm fine but and even now, still today, I was dad just a few months ago. He's like, I was actually having a pretty rough day, and he's like, oh, how are you, Corey?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm good, man." Like even now, even with all my emotional intelligence mm. and my ability to communicate that stuff, I I still tell people that I'm fine, even when I'm having having a bad day. That's yeah. shifted somewhat now. More recently, I've been really focused on when I'm in my stuff, reaching out. So I've got a mate who 
I know that he's not going to give me advice when I reach out to him. He's he's going to ask if I'm okay. If I'm really dark, he'll say to me, am I feeling suicidal? If you need to ask that question, he'll ask that question depending on what my state is. But I can, I can message him and go, even in the morning, I was having a really bad day. I've got some stuff going on in my life. And I just said, can you message me back when you, can you give us a call when you've got five minutes today? And just that act of like putting a message to someone, it took the burden off me of knowing that I need to carry this on my own. Yeah. This heaviness, this sadness, this emotional feeling today. And I think that's what men don't do, right? They don't have, I think men, particularly men, I can only, I, I say this a lot that I can speak from my own perspective as a man. And we, we become providers and we become fathers and we become the soccer coach or, or whatever it is, but our identity gets wrapped up in our, in our families and in our kids and in our work. And then who are we beyond that? And, and that's where we get, we get lost in that. So we lose our connection to our mates. We stop playing sport, all these things. And that creates more, more isolation and disconnection in our, in our own being, right? Absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's where the problem lies. And it was interesting. I was listening to a podcast the other day and the guy's like, you know, because when I was, when I was, when I was a young dad, he said he was probably in his 60s, right? He's like, when I come home from work, he goes, I sat on the couch. He goes, I didn't feel the need to, like, be running around after my kids and doing all this stuff and this pressure to, to cook and clean and contribute to the house and, and do all these things. It just wasn't how it just wasn't how society was. But now men go to work and, 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 and the wife may be at home, she may be at work, but there's an expectation that when the man comes home that he's going to look after the kids and he's going to do this and he's going to do that. And in all of that, men are losing their, losing their community, right? Losing their tribe, losing their identity. Mm. Oh, mate, look, it's interesting, isn't it, when you look at it? And that's what my dad did and that's what I did too. And then my wife used to uh, get stuck into me and, uh, and that's why um, you know, we probably had some... Um, some uh, some mixed uh, I suppose uh, opinions on things uh, as we as we go and yeah look it's changed life a lot you know as I said similar ages we've we've seen a lot over our 45 50 years you know and um, uh, yeah mate um, it was very similar back then but it was a lot simpler like pubs shut at like 10 o'clock you know now now life's life's 24 7 all the time and um uh, you know, a guy went to work, he, he, he sort of took it easy, he had his couple of beers and he went to bed and did it again and, um, you know, uh, it was a much simpler world and, and, and life's changed a hell of a lot and I do agree that we've got to try and share the load with our partners, um, you know, but there's not a lot of understanding uh, around what goes on between the ears of a man, you know, uh, from a woman's perspective in many ways and, and we don't sort of um, get... I suppose the slack sometimes that we need to be able just to, you know, de-escalate the temperature, as you said. Um, you know, uh, can be masked with a beer or whatever, and you know that emotion, uh, uh, that emotional side sort of you know calms down a little bit. But you know, if we just keep going around the loop, then we don't actually sort of you know improve as humans. And um, yeah, mate, it's complex being a, a man, but being a human in general with uh, what we've got to endure in modern society. 
you know, life was designed to be pretty simple for us, I think. You know, we meant to be more in our parasympathetic state and our calm state. Uh, and we're certainly, um, you know, we're getting thrown in and out of that consistently throughout the day, you know. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's where we're sort of getting a bit out of whack, uh, which is affecting relationships, parenting, uh, our work, all those sorts of things. Would you agree? Yeah, we, it affects it affects everything, right? Like, if we don't have... If I, I, I talk to teenagers, so I talk to teenagers when I talk about emotions. I'm like, if something happens on a camp and I try to unpack things there and then, and then I'm like, if you held on to that, like, where are you going to put it? Mm. Yes. And I'm like, what do you mean? And I go, well, it's going to get packed in your body, right? I said, imagine you've got a video game, and, like, you, you put a game in it, and then you buy a bunch of stuff that adds the memory, and then you put another game and another game and another game. And, like, imagine that's your body, but you're just packing in emotions, you know, like, you're just packing them in, packing them in, packing them in. And at some point, when they get to, like, your throat, because there's no space for them, how do they come out? Mm. And they come out as, as anger and aggression, typically, right? And the scary thing for me is that I was never angry and aggressive as a teenager, whether it was fear or, or what it was. It just wasn't something that was was in me like i just didn't didn't respond that way to my parents and maybe it's a way society saying hey you've got rights and, and all these things that teenagers feel safe to say hey if i don't agree with this then i'm gonna they express in a really unhealthy way that they don't agree with it you know, in a lot of a lot of the times mm. and i think that is so teaching them how to be able to like unpack to become an observer of their own life is how we create create change so men who are coming home if you're coming home and you're feeling frustrated and angry at your wife before you can get home but like what what is underlying yes yep you know there's a guy in a facebook group this morning he's like i'm doing 11 hours a day six days a week at the moment and like the boys got on there and they're like what's your what's your salary oh so you're getting 18 bucks an hour to do that job you know like but he feels stuck in it because he needs to provide. He's got a he's got a three month old baby. So yeah. how does he, you know? So he's already he's under he's a, he's a twenty five year old guy and he's already he's already at that point, right? Mm. And then so how where does he go to from there? Yeah, you know he's oh, he goes man. to so go he goes. I can't handle this, so I'm going to take my life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, mate, um, so, uh, that, that, that sounds familiar too. And, and see, mate, you talk about the 2% that goes towards mental health. Wouldn't some of that money be better spent towards helping that individual uh, have someone coach him and guide him through that and also give him an extra bit of income which can actually help support the family? Would, would that be a better way to go? Yeah, absolutely. But I also think people need to be, like, responsible for their own, for their own mental health, right? I think that... So I had a guy come to me for coaching. I gave him my rates. He's like, man, it costs a lot of money to get healthy. Mm. I'm like, mate, you smoke a packet of cigarettes a day. That's $250 a week. You drink two cartons of beer a week. That's $120 a week. Mm. Like, there there needs to be some, I think, while we, we need to rely on, on governments for some things, we also need to take personal responsibility for... For gaining control of our life right like 
people have people have access. Most organ, if you work for a relatively large organisation, you have access to an EAP where you can get twelve or ten appointments for free to go see a, see a counsellor or, or a coach. Like for me, I see I see my psychologist once a month, even when I'm doing okay. Mm. And if I'm not doing okay, sometimes I'll see her every week. Sometimes I'll see her twice a week. Mm. That's an expense I'm willing to pay for my own mental health because I don't want to be, I don't want my wife to be my counsellor, right? Yep, yep, that's right. So, yeah, but while I agree that government needs to needs to spend money, I think also we need to learn to value our mental health. You know, I was talking to someone about this the other day. There's an expectation that mental health services are are provided for, for free a lot of the time and, and lots of people who want to be of service, including me and probably you, run run are in men's circles for free for two years. Yep, that's it. And I coached people for free for, for twelve months when I when I first started coaching. And then the first person that I one day I just went, you know what? Someone comes to me for coaching, I said, Oh, these are my rates, man and he paid and the changes that he had were exponential yeah. he's, he's compared got, to the people who didn't pay. He's got he had some skin, skin in the game, yeah. Skin in the game. And and when we have skin in the game, we're, we're more likely to to take some action and to create some positive change when we're offering them for free. People people will take it on, but they won't actually implement the stuff in my, in my experience. Take it for granted, yeah, you're right. So yeah, well, I think the government has. I think the government needs to pour, pour more effort into front end stuff, and the front end stuff that is getting supported. Not that these. Like, we just need to call it for what it is, right? Like these organisations that are getting all this funding are not having an impact. The 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 stats on mental health aren't improving. Yes. So why do we keep pouring money into organisations? They have they have great marketing and great branding and et cetera, et cetera. They're not actually having an impact. Yes, that's right. You know, I'm oh. taking my. I'm hoping to get someone who's doing doing a university degree, doing their PhD. I'm hoping to get to get my book and to go take it to a school which has a bunch of at-risk kids. And let's see what it's like for kids checking their emotions every day and how do they show up? How does that, does that actually improve their engagement in their education? Yep. Does it, does it reduce the volume of volatility in the school environment? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, mate. It's interesting. One thing that came to me there before, like, wouldn't it be smarter to be able to match dollar for dollar the, the individual that um, was looking for a bit of guidance and coaching uh, so they've got skin in the game to get someone like you to help them and the government matches that dollar for dollar so it's actually more affordable for them. Yeah, exactly. But the government won't even the government won't even like acknowledge counsellors to be in Medicare, right? Like mm. you have to be a psychologist to get to get Medicare. So there's there's all these counsellors who get no government support to to offer services to the to the community like that that just blows my mind you know like that that would be literally a dollar for dollar scenario right yeah counselors are now can get if you've got depending on what level of certification you've got you can have you know i've i've, I've only got diploma in in counseling but i have like life experience which is worth 100x of what a university degree in counseling would be worth 
Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Oh, I agree, mate. And and you know, luckily, uh, we're in a moment in time where that's starting to be acknowledged. Whereas a few years ago, it wasn't. Like no one would actually acknowledge what you'd actually been through as being a a part of um, you know being able to support and help others. It was all about the clinical model, and obviously the clinical model, as you mentioned, doesn't work that well. You know, it's it's reactive. Uh, there is a there is a um, a need for it in some ways, but it's not the goose that laid the golden egg. Uh, there's got to be uh, more put, more work put in that front end, as you said, that, that prevention space, uh, because that's really where it's needed to be able to help people go through the journey of life, you know, being balanced uh, rather than sort of being out of balance, um, you know, um, less consistently, I suppose, is really important. And we... Um, you know, we, we need to focus on that. Unfortunately, mate, unhealthy people are good for the economy uh, and, uh, you know, unhealthy people uh, create uh, revenue and that's uh, not the right mindset, but it's the mindset that's there at the moment. It's got to change. Yeah, and I, and I think but I think there is stuff happening. Like our, I went to a thing at school yesterday and... There was a think tank on like how to do education differently, how to reduce the stress on the kid. What would it look like to let the year 11 kids have a day where they get to choose what the day looks like, whether they just need a mental health day to stay at home and, and to rest mm. or whether they want to come in with a group of five people and sit with the chemistry teacher and go through some stuff but not actually have it. So it's like changing the structure of of education, you know, uh, and there's organisations. So there are, there are some good organisations that, that are launching and coming out. You know, Guy Sebastian is supporting Open Parachute and that is, like, really about this preventative space, you know. Like, it's not it's, – it depends on the school and how they're delivering it and, and what's happening with that. But it, it's it's happening, right? And there's they're saying they're with 300,000 students, but I don't, I'm not sure that they're actually having the effect that they think they are. But – it's it's a step in the right direction of preventative 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 work, you know, yep. um, and I think that that's that's really important to acknowledge that the world is there's people like you and me that are just starting out as as, as singles. Like there's a resilience project they're doing early work, and, you know. There, there's a lot of organisations that are, that are doing this work in in high schools, you know, but it's just it needs to be on. On scale, it needs to be. It needs to be. Yeah. Yep. It needs fun, you know, to get. It, it does, yeah. mate. But you know, like also, we've got to be able to not so much just rely on industry, but you talk about skin in the game, like like employers, for example, that actually like invest in the well-being of their people is so much better than actually waiting to say, oh yeah, someone's got something wrong, well they can go to the AP, you know. So to get yeah, exactly. Like the I same. spoke to by someone asked me last week if I want to start an off-profit creating spaces for men who that are funded by big business, basically. So where you set up a space where it's in say 300, 400 square meter shed. It's got a pool table, it's got a table tennis table, basketball ring couple of boxing bags, a CrossFit rig, um, and get guys to come in, have, have psychologists on board or lived experience, people who have been trained in a, in, a, in a coaching program that could then come in and coach these guys in a situation where they're not sitting at, in a psychologist's room trying to have a conversation. They're like hitting the table tennis ball and, and talking about what's going on in their life here and now 
and we structure something like Richard Swartz internal family system, which doesn't really go back into the trauma super deeply, so you're not, not reigniting the wound all the time, which is what psychology tends to do, right? It tends to reignite the wound. It wants to explore, oh, well, when did that, when did that happen? And, and let's, let's, let's explore that. And well, I, don't, I don't think it's, for me, what works best is, is talking to guys about what's happening here and now and what they can do differently and doing a little bit of work around where did it come from, what's the seed of that, but really teaching them how to how to be different in, in their, how they move in the world. Yeah, I agree, mate. That's right. And, and, and that's the thing, like, that, that, that guidance is really important, you know. Really, there's, if you lined up 10 guys, there'd only be one that could say that they've got a successful mentor in their life, you know. Usually, uh, you know, uh, a lot of us um, go through, uh, you know, our teen years and into adult life and, uh, and that without actually having that, that particular guidance and someone that you can talk to regularly and openly, um, you know, I think that's, that's a, a huge missing link uh, that needs to be addressed. And that's where we can have a, a real um, you know, difference in impact uh, from a preventative perspective, which can, can make a difference, you know, because really you look at it, mate, like you, you look at a guy that's, um, that's, that's playing up, drinking too much, you know, crime, this, that, the other, there's something going on in their life which has made them behave that way, and um, you know to be able to sort of move through that with confidence is 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 um, you know, non-existent and very rare. And it's not uh, until they get to a point like you and I did, where we sort of you know we're maybe in our mid thirties or whatever, we actually start to realise shit. You know, maybe we've got to do something, or you get a a whack from the universe which forces that, which happened to you. You know, uh, and. Um, we just uh, we just seem to be able to you know uh, go through life until something goes wrong before we actually try and make a change. But I think this is why you and I have got the work to do that we need to do to be able to sort of help uh, help facilitate that change. You know, be able to sort of have conversations with people that can actually like spark that before you have a guy die on your arms or before you nearly run the car off the road or anything like that. You know. <coughs> Uh, because um, they're moments in time which should never happen. Yeah, absolutely. And the question that I had when I first started doing men's work was like, how can I get men to do the work without hitting rock bottom? Yeah. Um, and I don't. I think that's the million dollar question, right? Like, why do men need to hit rock bottom before they before they get support? And and it's it's culture. Um, societal culture, it's family culture, it's yeah, and and all that wrapped in wrapped in each other. School culture, work culture, it's you know, it's um, it's uh, I feel like it's still a badge of honour to like work sixty hours a week. Mm, I know. Yep. Yeah, you know, all that kind of changes, and like they're talking about four day work weeks and this and that, but they go, "Oh, we'll do a four day work week, but you need to do ten hours a day." you're going to do that, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I know. <laughs> still, yeah. yeah, instead of having a culture of, hey, you're a sales guy, this is your target, once you hit your target, like, you can do do whatever you want, you know, so if you hit your target on Monday, you know, like, you can have the, have the rest of the week off, you know, but organisations instead, they go, hey, you've hit your target, awesome job. Is your new target for next month. Yes, more. Put, put and more then pressure on you. Those targets keep getting increased and increased and increased until such time as you 
you can't cope anymore, right? I've got a mate who's just had his targets doubled for the annual year, and he's like, yeah, I won't need to do more hours, rah, rah, and then I was caught up with him. He's like, he's like, yes, yesterday was heavy, and he goes, I got onto a conference call at 5 a.m., and then I started work at 8, and then I didn't finish till 8 p.m. I'm like, bro, that's a 15-hour day. Yeah. Like, did you have today off? No, nah, man, I did, I did nine today. You know, so it's crazy. Do, do and you know he can't what? see. Go ahead, mate. He, like, so go ahead. He can't see it because he's in it. Oh, big time! Like I was there too. I know what it's like. But mate, do you know what? Um, you know, the whack from the universe will come because the body's smarter than you. You keep, uh, you know, forcing against nature and forcing against life, then you get a kick in the ass, and that's what's going to happen. So, all the zeros on the end of your salary are worth nothing when when that happens. Yeah, you know, we've all been caught up in that matrix of thinking we're powerful and good, and the ego gets a strike when uh, we're making all this money. But is that any good at the end of the day? I, I doubt it. Yeah, and unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, all I can do is like I've just been really honest with him that I about the net effect that it's having on our friendship uh, about how I've observed him over the last 18 months and how I'm really worried about him and what would it look like for him to get some support. But okay, that's what I can do, you know, and at some point I'll be there to, to pick up the pieces. Yeah, later on, that's right. But it's difficult because, yeah, he's probably trapped, mate. He's got a mortgage and he's got all these expectations on him and that. And, um, yeah, you are you are in the economy trap primarily. And um, yeah, think about it, that's, that's where they want us to end up. You know, because you're controlled then. You're able to be controlled. But you hit on something really important before because the more you can be of service to others, that actually gives you the ability to heal yourself. Um, so to be able to flip that mindset around and, and, and lower your expectations and do things which can actually help you uh, support other, others in humanity, that's the real secret and the real gift that we're not conscious of because we're being pushed to the opposite end of what we're meant to be doing as humans. Yeah, society just wants us to have more, 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 right? We're just marketed to and sold to and et cetera, et cetera. For me, like I, I invest in, in community is, is, what I'm, is what I'm about. It's about where do I invest in? In community. Mm. How do I change in community? You know, like it's even with my book, like I've got a fundraiser. So I've got a book that I wrote, Little Book of Big Emotions, which is all about teaching people how to observe how they got into a situation, how do they get angry, how do they feel when they're angry, who can they talk to when they're angry, and what did they do when they stop feeling angry. So all of a sudden, if kids are teaching themselves CBT, oh, this is what makes me angry, so I shouldn't do that, and all of a sudden they've got these this toolbox which they don't end up in a state of suicidal or in a state of... In, in mental health decline, right? And the fascinating thing for me has been that I was sitting on the school oval and I was talking to my dad about this thing I'd created and there was another dad sitting there. So, hey, Corey, the book's not just for kids, man. You you sneak attacked on me. He goes, I've really got a lot of benefit out of it. Shit. So, and he really, he's the sort of guy that goes, I don't hug, you know, like he's really disconnected from his emotions. So I was really fascinated to hear him, hear him say that about, what people believe to be a kid's book, but it's much deeper than that, you know, and I think that we need to be 
we need to teach kids how to meditate in school. We need to, this is where the work is, right? Yep. The work is in the curriculum. Yes. It's, where it's, it's having, having emotional intelligence as a part of the curriculum, but not from a, not from a psychologist's point of view, you know, not from a Clinical. ticking a box point of view. Yep. You know, like my son, he did last year, he was in year four, and he did an hour of mental health where they coloured in on a page what their emotions were. Like, if you're angry, what colour do you see? Be red. Mm. You know? And I'm just like, I talk to my kids about this stuff, but it was a bizarre... I'm just like, how is this where we're at in 2022? Like, yeah. how is the the thing? And even in schools, it's like, I've been stuck up on zones of regulation, but that's... Even that, in that school environment, is a reactive thing. Yes. Okay, you're really angry. You go to the zones of regulation and look at where you're at. I'm really angry. But what about if we get kids to say, how am I feeling when I first come to school? What does that look like? How am I feeling after recess? Oh, I feel good. Oh, so when we let kids go out and play, they come back to the classroom and they feel good about themselves. How can we integrate more of that into the school environment so we have kids who have dopamine and hormones run through their system so they can actually learn and want to be there that's right mate and it's interesting um yeah because um you know let's talk about being reactive but that that coloring into reactive like being able to learn how to settle your mind down and, and find that calm space within yourself as being proactive and that's available to all of us at the end of the day oh it's free like i had three teenagers sitting at a table with me yesterday and i they were talking about stress and anxiety. I said, oh, you want a simple tool to deal with exam stress? They go, yeah. I said, oh, here it is. They go, oh, that can't work. I said, oh, let's do it here and now. So put your hand on your heart, put your hand on your belly, take a deep breath in for four seconds. Hold that. Hold it, hold it, hold it. All right, just let that balloon empty itself. I said, do that ten times when you walk into an exam. Do it when you're sitting down while the teacher's talking all the rubbish before the exam starts, telling you not to cheat and all that stuff. Don't even listen to that. Just come back into your own in your own body. Mm. Yep, agree, mate. Because yeah, all the tension's above the shoulders, isn't it? Uh, when they when they're in that environment, if they can learn to to settle down and regulate, then the brain works better. Um, it's not rocket science, but you know. Tension, tension causes reaction. Um, being proactive and, and being able to find that regulation actually helps an individual be proactive. And, um, you know, again, this is where we've got the work to do. You know, this is not just for kids, it's for men, uh, adults, all that sort of stuff that, um, that haven't been shown and taught this stuff, mate. And, um, uh, you know, that's our gift to humanity. We've, we've gone through what we've been through so we can actually help others understand that... Um, this is available to them and available to us all. We've all got the ability to, to be calm. It's our natural state to be that way. We just sort of get thrown out of rat whack consistently by all the make-believe bullshit, you know, at the end of the day. But, you know, we don't want to see situations where, um, you know, guys are getting depressed and anxious as often and, and suicidal as often, but it's happening too much, mate, you know, and um, that's why the preventative space is so much uh, more important than the safety net that's been created, which isn't really working that well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, yeah. We all know the system needs to change. Even the government knows the system needs to change. It's just a matter of um, when, you know, like it's 
tomorrow's tomorrow's too late, you know. Like, but well, all we have is today, you know. So we can just focus on what we can do as in you know, with your Outback Foundation, with, with my big emotion stuff, and and there's so much stuff going on at the ground floor at the moment that we just need to stay focused on what we can implement and what we can change, rather than like on on what's what we can't. Yep, that's right. And given that energy, mate, just keep going about your business. And tell me, mate, how can people get hold of you to look about, you know, look at the wonderful work that you're doing, and maybe get hold of your book and and start to become a bit more emotionally intelligent themselves? Yeah, if they just look up Academy, like that's the domain is www.bigemotionsacademy.com, and then my Instagram is Big Emotions Academy, and my Facebook page is Big Emotions Academy. So everything is everything is underlying that that Big Emotions Academy mm, branding. Basically, is where it's at for me. When did all this come about, for you, mate? When did this actually become a reality? When did you think of the name and and have the the courage to be able to move forward into the space? Um, I guess when COVID hit, I couldn't work. So then I, I guess I just prayed on what, what was my thing that I needed to do. If I can't do this work, but I want to have an impact, what does that look like? So that was, that kind of happened August last year was when I had the first kind of inkling of like, I'm going to write a book. And then I spent six months looking for an artist. Um, and then I finally stopped looking and just put it into the world and said, Hey, does anyone know an artist that can support me? And one of my best mates' wives actually said, have you spoken to this person? And that ended up being the person who created the book. <laughs> uh, and I was just kind of caught the little book of big emotions. That was It was just going to be the book. Like, that was going to be my thing. And then I just kept leaning into it and leaning into it. And I just thought, like, what, what would this look like if it was like, an academy. What what if, what if it was just a space where we taught people about emotions, not just kids, but adults. And I think adults get thrown off because of the characters and the in the brand and whatnot. But mm. you know, I've just signed my first corporate client to go in and do lived experience talking. Um, and yeah, I think it's all relative. But yeah, so basically, that was. What gave me the courage? I don't, I don't feel like I was being courageous. I feel like, like I, it's funny, I don't give myself enough credit for, for this thing that I've created, to be honest. I think that I've just kind of been like plodding along and just doing a little bit each day. So I just do a little bit each day, and, and it's amazing how that can create, create something like this, you know? Like, even... Even for me, just sitting down and writing the book was so powerful, right? Learning that I had no relationship with happiness. Mm, yes. I was so disconnected from that. You know, there's probably a whole separate podcast in, in that in itself. But <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I, I, I don't feel like I was courageous. I think anyone can do this. I think anyone can create a, a deck of cards. Anyone can create a book. Anyone, the thing is, like Gary Vee talks about this. He's like, you know why I share all of my ideas? Because ninety nine percent of people are not going to take any action on them anyway. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yep. So if you've got an idea about something of writing a book, of I've got another, I've got ideas for another half a dozen books to flow on behind this book of, of kids books, and I've got an adult book um, doing similar to what you're doing. Really, is like I want to. I think that if I have a story, a book of lived experiences as a child, what was the trauma? How did that create 
create an impact for you in your life and then what did you do to create difference, I think that's a really powerful way to storytell and to create create positive change in the world rather than coming from this clinical yeah. clinical point of view of writing a book. Yep, yep, agree, mate. That's right. People learn from what others have been through. It's a story, you know. They've got connection with it. That's so important, um, you know, rather than being labelled with something and then having that identity attached to you and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're meant to be free as humans and being able to, you know, flow through the world, you know, with ease, you know, not dis-ease, you know. And, um, yeah, you're right, mate. I've got ideas. I've written one and that, that, that book, you know, is really... Uh, a journey uh, of my own lived experience and what I did to move through that. And, and that book's, I know, has helped, you know, save lives and change lives and all that sort of stuff. And I've been sort of wanting to do another one, but I haven't forced it, you know. It'll flow when the time's right. And I think I think that'll be the same with you. When the time's right, it'll actually, like, come to life for you. And, and that'll be so much more powerful and forcing it because it'll just have the right energy uh, that can go into the world that'll make a difference. Yeah, exactly. I put a social media post out and said, does anyone want to share a story? I had two people reach out. So I'm like, oh, perfect. These are the, these are the first two that I'll, that I'll write stories mm. about, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah, amazing. But Tell me, yeah, mate, um, just to, again, what was your website? Uh, just bigemotionsacademy.com. .com, cool. Mate, it's been a pleasure. We're going to run out of time, so probably need to... Uh, to, to put an end to this conversation but I think you know we're going to have many more in the future where we've got so much in common uh, I love your work love what you're doing and love your vulnerability to be able to sort of move away from being a bodybuilder and into you know all sorts of uh, walks of life and then be able to move into what you're doing now mate and, and that's you know real credit to you and you know the best is yet to come in many ways you know you've got so much uh, to look forward to and, um, and not force that but you know the impact that you can have on your own life to improve, uh, you know, the, the rest of the journey, but also to improve others is, is, is really, uh, um, you know, there and available. There's, there's no doubt about it, mate. So I really congratulate you for, for what you've done and everything that you've become. And, uh, you know, um, just really grateful that you're able to, to share your journey with us today. And uh, I think there's a few more podcasts in the com- or from the conversation we've had today, um, which is going to help a lot of people in the future as well. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate you taking the time and reaching out, man. Thank you so much for writing that. 